Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in East European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Ling, and today we'll be speaking with Eric Loera about her book, Jewish Poland Revisited Heritage, Heritage Tourism in Unquiet Places. And I want to say that I've known about this project since uh, it was in its infancy. Uh, Eric contacted me when I was in grad school, uh, and it's really great to see this book come to, uh, to fruition. So, uh, hello, Erica. How are you? Hi, Hugo. Um, this is fun. Yeah, I, I remember I was an undergraduate at Grinnell College in Iowa, um, and I guess you were at University of Michigan, where I later ended up. Um, so it's fun to uh, it's fun to be invited, and thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Well, uh, it is is a really a pleasure of mine. And uh, why don't we start by talking about how this project came to be in the first place, and your 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 discovery or your Eastern Europe project. I went to Poland for reasons that really had no immediate relation to anything Jewish at all. Uh, basically, I was taking a year off from college in 1989-90. Um, and so, of course, you know, this was the beginning of all of these major political transformations in Eastern Europe. And I was you know, kicking around, I'm not sure what to do, a bit at loose ends. And my, my brother and I, um, encouraged by our parents, uh, decided that we should go and see the revolution. Um, and, you know, of course, I think in the back of our minds, there was some vague sense that this was a place that we drew our own family heritage as well. I think my father made me um, uh, a map that he laminated where he put sort of um, little pen points on the sites which were in Poland, although today are in the Ukraine where our family was from. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was that as a backdrop as well. Um and I think, you know, that, that the combination of this being kind of a revolutionary transformative moment, sort of both politically, but also, of course, socially and culturally, and then um, our own, my own subjectivity, um, you know, led to various encounters that I had with people in Poland that, um, that opened up the themes that I then became quite um, fascinated by and pursued in the book. Um, and I can maybe tell one anecdote um, so I think, you know, the, the way people responded to us as Jews um, was with a, a level of fascination that, of course, nobody at home ever responded to me um, as. And um, I think, you know, the, the fact that the, the Jewish narrative, Jewish history, Jewish culture was not a topic of free conversation. It was a taboo topic during the communist period. So there were a generation of people who's, um, who had heard, you know, around kitchen tables, their parents or grandparents speak about um, you know, Jewish neighbors, Jewish shopkeepers, um, uh, Jewish friends, uh, but of course had never met a Jew themselves. And I actually, I remember meeting one, uh, young 20 year old guy who said, you know, for him, Jews were something like out of a fairy tale book, like, you know, it would be like Maria, John and Jew, just some kind of character that, um, you know, not, not from their own social life. And so then these two, you know, young backpacking American Jews show up, uh, start bumping into people in Poland, and of course, that you know, we um, seemed like we dropped out of a out of a fairy tale or out of a history book, um, and uh, yeah, so you know, lo- lots of questions, which led to questions of my own. And I remember having been invited to stay over at the homes of a, a lovely Polish couple that we met on a train. Um, we stayed over at their home in Olsztyn in northern Poland for a couple of nights, and. Um, and when we came to their home, I remember seeing that they had a menorah on their dining table. Uh, and I was really surprised. And I just blurted out, oh, I didn't know that you were Jewish. And the gentleman looked at me kindly and said, oh, well, we're not Jewish. And of course, in my you know suburban uh, North American Jewish mind, I thought, like, wait, non- why would a non-Jew have a menorah? Um, that doesn't make sense. And, uh, and so I asked, and he just explained to me that it was an artifact and I think hearing that word in that place by that person, um, you know, of, of course, you know, going to to Poland and having um, 
coming from a family that had a very you know kind of powerful definitive holocaust experience my mother had been a wartime refugee lost all of her family who had been in poland at the time um there were just so many resonances and so many emotions around that sense of that someone could have a, a piece of what I considered, quote, my culture um, and see it in a sense as a museum piece um, opened, you know, in some ways I could say all of the questions that then, um, you know, became the topic of, of the book. You know, it's fascinating. I, I remember a friend, I have a friend who is of a dark complexion and has an aquiline nose, which of course fits into uh, Mitzkevich's description of the Polish lachta as well. And she described to me, she's Polish, she described and grew up in Poland, having somebody, this is in, again about 86, 87, uh, and of course things are already changing a little bit and asking her, stopping her on the street and saying, you know, excuse me, I'm, uh, this is not about that, but are you Jewish? You look so perfectly Jewish. There was that kind of interest. Um, a lot of your book focuses on Kajimierz, uh, which uh, for those who are unaware is kind of a, a Jewish satellite city that dates from the medieval time. Uh, of Krakow. And uh, would you talk about that and its centrality in uh, Jewish culture in Poland today? Um, Okay. Well, so, I mean, well, maybe if you don't mind, maybe could I say a few things about sort of Jewish culture? I know you're interested in sort of the development of the tourist industry, et cetera, more generally, and then I can return to, to Kazimierz within that. Sure, sure. If you'd like to do that, that's fine. Okay. Um, whatever, whatever you think works for you. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say a few words about, um, you know, the this issue of Jewish culture um, as, a, as an engine or a, having a role in relation to um, the Jewish, uh, in relation to the tourist industry in, in Poland more generally, um, post-communism. Uh, and, you know, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, um, about, you know, the role of Jewish culture in relation to tourism more generally. So, you know, looking at Jewish culture as something that was one of the kind of um, exportable pieces of sort of, you know, cultural interest um, since the late 1980s, something that was, um, that you could see visible in English language tourist maps produced by what was then the Ministry of Tourism. Um, so a, a sense that there was, um, there was something interesting or marketable uh, about Jewishness. Um, but, but I'm not really sure that Jewish culture was a huge draw for international tourists, um, aside, aside, however, from Jewish tourists. Um, but in some ways, I think Jews either came or didn't come to Poland for their own very powerful reasons. Um, Auschwitz and Holocaust tourism, though, I think was a bigger draw which um, which sometimes, of course, gets totally conflated with Jewish history, sometimes gets separated from it. But, uh, but I think Auschwitz is probably the biggest international tourist destination in Poland. Um, but Jewish culture, I think, played a larger role in the development of, of internal national Jewish tourism. So by the early 2000s, you have like, the development of a kind of middle class with some disposable income in Poland. Um, and Jewish festivals, like um, one that actually was was something that I had encountered on my that first trip to Poland, uh, Krakow's Jewish Festival, um, which became a very major one. And this year is in I think it's twenty twenty sixth twenty seventh year, um, along with some more provincial ones uh, in, in you know that, that grew up later in the two thousands, like in cities uh, like Chmielnik or other places across the country. Um, uh, Jewish culture in this in this form sort of became a magnet for um, Polish culture seekers, which at first I think um, had to do with people really being drawn to alternative culture, just in general. So uh, you know, as an alternative to this homogenous Catholic Polishness that was all that was on offer uh, under communism. Um, but then later, you know, with the development of this leisure class, just uh, a magnet for people looking for an interesting destination. Um, and so the festival, um, more recently, the, the Pauline Museum of the History of Polish Jews, which opened very recently in 2014, um, have, have probably helped shift the attitudes of some foreign Jews to Poland. But um but most Jewish tourism to Poland, I think I would still categorize as having the quality of a kind of pilgrimage. So something you feel like you have to do once kind of dutifully, 
and I can I you know talk a lot about different qualities of uh, different different kinds of of, uh, of Jewish tourism in the book. Um, I think Kazimierz coming back to your question, um, Kazimierz fit into that um, in some interesting ways. It's as you said, Kazimierz is this really unique um, East European medieval Jewish quarter that was not destroyed during World War II, um, and so it sort of forms this incredible like mise en scène for for reengagement with the memory of the Jewish past, um, and it's something that it, its own enlivenment as a quarter re enlivenment um, because of course it had been. Uh, even though the infrastructure, the the built environment was not destroyed, the human, the, the Jewish human environment um, was uh, during the war. Um, so the, the the kind of re-enlivenment of the space began with with local non-Jewish activists, um, along with some. So, so we, excuse me. Just, yeah. I, just, I think we should clarify one thing. The reason it was allowed to stand was because the uh, Nazis had planned to turn it into a museum uh, of everything that was wrong with Judaism. Uh, and the Jews. So I uh, just wanted to clarify why that had happened and why, what made it so unique. Continue. Oh, well, you know what? I'd like, to, I'd actually like to open that because in fact, that's, that's not something I've heard in particular. My understanding is that um, Kajimir's was not destroyed simply because, you know, um, Krakow was the center of the, the general government and, uh, you know, Hans Frank, the Nazi general was um, ruling from Babel Castle there. And simply that he, um, that, that he appreciated the city so much and simply, you know, he was inhabiting there. He was inhabiting, uh, he had his home out in Przegorzawe and um, this castle on the outskirts of Krakow um, and, uh, and simply didn't want the city destroyed. But it's interesting. Maybe you know something about it that I don't. Um, so, but yes, back to, uh, back to Kazimierz uh, in the late, you know, late 1980s, early 1990s, um, uh, yes, it was so an undestroyed medieval Jewish quarter, um, and it had, I believe, seven synagogues, multiple houses of prayer, um, a couple of uh, intact mikvahs. Um, but this was a, you know, it had really become essentially a, a kind of ghetto um, in the, you know, in the North American sense. It had become a, a rundown uh, quarter where, you know, you could you know, buy rot gut alcohol and there were stray dogs. Um, it was not a place that anyone um, who didn't have to, you know, live there would, would want to go at night. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, it began to be also a place for kind of the, this first generation of seekers of, um, you know, what, what have we not been told? What have we not, what have we lost? What have we, you know, what has fallen out of our consciousness um, in these, you know, in this generation of communism? Um, so, local Jews with their own sort of awakening curiosity um, and emboldenment during the waning years of communist rule, um, ch- checking out the neighborhood. Um, of course, it was a place that, you know, their parents or grandparents maybe had uh, had gone to synagogue. Um, and the, the synagogue there in the quarter actually had functioned kind of hobblingly, continuously, um, throughout, uh, you know, th- throughout the, continuously since the wartime. Um, but, uh, but they could rarely get a, a minion or the necessary quorum of Jewish men necessary to do formal prayer. Um, but it was a place that you could find a, a few old Jews on, on Saturday on the Sabbath. Um, uh, but then, you know, it was also discovered by, by local non-Jewish activists who simply felt that, um, this was a site that should be remembered for its, uh, you know, historical significance, and started, um, you know, opening different kinds of, um, I guess you could call them heritage institutions um, that, you know, that in some way marked um, uh, the, the Jewish past, um, the Jewish history of the quarter. You know, a, a Jewish bookshop, a Jewish cafe, um, then later various kinds of cabarets, um, then. Pretty soon, the Jewish Culture Festival, which had started in 1988 in a movie theater on the other side of town, moved by 1990 into Kajimej. Um, so uh, this this site, um, you know, became a kind of magnet uh, be- because of its own history, the awakening interests of both local Jews and particularly local non-Jews, um, and then and then also the space. I argue has its own kind of particular like genius loci of the, of the, the literal built 
fabric of the, the urban fabric. Um, it's uh, this enclosed square um, plus a few blocks of, um, of buildings around it that if you visit it, you kind of, um, you know, get caught in this little cul-de-sac, I would say. And, uh, and people of very varying backgrounds and interests meet each other there. Um, and I, I argue that, um, you know, a lot of um, realizations, um, uh, changing attitudes, both on the side of local non-Jewish um, uh, people who were engaging with Jewish culture and also uh, visiting Jews from abroad, um, as well as local Jews, uh, there was like this kind of, um, you know, sort of, uh, alchemy happening here where people were forced to engage with each other in a situation for many people of very high emotion, um, also different kinds of naivete on all sides. Um, and they really, they pushed each other and changed each other's minds, uh, created a lot of realizations, which were important, um, socially, uh, and politically, I think. Why don't we go from there and talk about two sort of separate but uh, but converging uh, issues, and that is the state of Poland's Jew- small Jewish community at the end of communism first, and then talk about uh, Jewish attitudes towards Poland and the development of heritage tourism, uh, uh, what you call heritage tourism, and specifically towards Poland. Uh, why don't we do that next? When I think about heritage tourism, I think about travel that engages with what what the travelers deem to be significant elements of a community's historical experience. So heritage is kind of the, it's like heritage is the past that we value or the past that haunts us. Um, now, Jack Kugamas, who's uh, another really interesting anthropologist, traces a kind of... Um, what I, I believe he calls homeland travel back to the early 20th century when Jewish emigrants who were, you know, kind of made good uh, generally in North America came back to visit um, and sometimes interestingly film uh, their old country relatives. Um, but of course, this this ability, the desire and also the perspective on this kind of return um, changed really radically with the Holocaust and its various aftermaths. Um, and so throughout the, the communist period, you had really just a trickle of this kind of ancestral pilgrimage. Um, interestingly, this, of course, includes like Hasidic pilgrimage to um, graves of important uh, rabbis, tzaddikim, um, which is kind of a, a parallel thread, which in some small ways intersects with larger kinds of Jewish tourism and in other ways was very hermetic. Um but also, you know, individual one-on-one meetings with local Jews. In thinking about, you know, the Jewish community in Poland by the end of communist rule was, um, it looked moribund. Uh, basically, you had, um, despite there being this one synagogue, the Ramu synagogue um, in, in Krakow that had been technically open, um, with a few people hanging around, um, you know, on, on Shabbat and on the high holidays. Um, if you wanted to find Jews, the, the other place you would find them was in the, what was called the TS Kajet or the, um, the Jewish social and cultural organization, which was the one, um, the one sort of formally um, permitted Jewish organization, um, during communism. And that's essentially where, um, where, you know, it was a few older men, um, mostly who had married non-Jewish wives. And that's the place where they would get together to be Jewish. Um, uh, and that meant for them, I think, speaking a little bit of Yiddish, you know, and drinking coffee. Um, uh, you know, Jews, you know, so there had been three and a half million Jews in uh, in Poland before World War II, and this was this incredibly rich, diverse community. I think it was the biggest uh, Jewish community outside of um, outside of New York, outside of the U.S. Um, and um, and you know, it had you know all manner of of you know stripes of religion, political uh, engagement, um, social class, etc. Uh, and of course, you know, most of them. Um, Sort of three, you know, three point two million of them were were murdered during the Holocaust, and three hundred thousand of them, um, most of whom had survived in the Soviet Union, um, came back to Poland. But many of them quickly left because the conditions were 
uh, very um, unwelcoming. Um, and then the, you know, the some tens of thousands of Jews who uh, were still there by um, the end of the 1940s, early 1950s, um, you know, trickled out during various moments of um, of increasing anti-Semitism, most particularly uh, what we have an anniversary of this year, the 1968 um, government-sponsored anti-Semitic campaign during which about 13,000 of what were then the remaining, I think, 23,000 Jews were given these one-way passports um, and, and encouraged, encouraged to emigrate, um, which most of them did. Uh, so, you know, by the time someone like me arrived in Poland, uh, in early 1990, you saw, you know, a few, a few Jewish men, um, hanging around the synagogue or hanging around this Jewish, uh, social club, um, who, uh, yeah, clearly had also become used to sort of performing their Jewishness for people like me, um, you know, showing how they were still there, um, you know, speaking a little bit of Yiddish, talking about their memories of the war um, or uh, or their parents' memories of what had happened to their family um, and, and often, you know, asking for a little bit of money to help them ostensibly with the synagogue, but, um, but I think they needed it, you know, personally as much. Um, and I think, you know, these people also became a kind of... Um, a kind of particular, a very aestheticized image and idea about Jewishness in Poland at that time. So there was this discourse, um, which was supported by uh, news reporting and some uh, documentary photographers, that you know Jewishness in Poland was a, a case of just some remnants, some traces. There was this um, National Geographic article and then a book called Remnants: The Last Jews of Poland, which really you know, showed these people in incredibly impoverished situations, um, and really, um, you know, kind of voicing this discourse of we are, we are all that's left. This is the end of the line. Um, and so, you know, of course for them, these visits from outsiders, from, uh, from foreign Jews and from, you know, locals interested in Jewishness were incredibly important, um, both in terms of their own kind of self-understanding or conception of what, what would be possible as a, um, you know, as, as a community, um, in terms of like, I think that for them, the sudden interest in Jewishness, I think seemed, um, you know, perhaps too little, too late, a bit superficial, but of course, materially, um, it was useful for them. Uh, but of course <clears throat> the emergence of, of heritage tourism, the enlivening of Kazimierz brought all sorts of, uh, all sorts of other Jews, um, or other people who identified with Jewishness out of the woodwork, both locally and more further af afield, who would come to Kazimierz because it became, in all of Poland, I think, um, one of the first uh, public spots that was marked uh, it was marked as as Jewish that people felt comfortable coming to and in some way being Jewish openly. Um, you know, in terms of the the tourism. Um, Maybe this is a moment just to mention, aside from this kind of trickle of individual tourists, and then of course the Hasidic pilgrims who were crossing through Kazimierz, but sort of doing their own thing. Um, there were these groups that uh, that are often called, and I call them in my book, missions. So these are um, off overwhelmingly youth uh, oriented, but not always, but Jewish communally organized um, travel groups really with a sense of mission that they are going somewhere to um, to a kind of outpost of, of you know remnant Jewishness in the world and um, and coming both with their own interests but also their desire um, perhaps to help in some way or to give um, to give some kind of support um, and this includes uh, you know major um, Israeli state-sponsored youth missions that um, that all high school students are encouraged to go on um, and so you you would have these in the spring, um, you would have these massive uh, influxes of young, vibrant Jewish people who were suddenly filling, pouring through these spaces, filling the synagogue, you know, singing with great gusto. Um, and, uh, you know, the engagements of, um, of some of these people um, was easier to do for people who are traveling on their own, but the presence of these large groups also um, were really sort of part of the, the kind of important 
encounters that I argue happen um, happen in Kazimierz, giving people in Poland a sense of Jewishness as a living force rather than uh, simply, you know, something from the past that is, you know, in, in the state of remnants. Um, that uh, the Jews can be, you know, like young and fun and sexy and, you know, in, just simply alive in the present day rather than related to, uh, you know, people with black coats and sidelocks or, or you know, not not to put it too crassly, but a, a, simply a pile of dead bodies um, was really pretty shocking for many people. Um, what about the, could you talk more about the particular mission that and what they are, how they focus? Because I think it does shape how, you know, some of the aspects of, of dialogue and or where the dialogue takes place that you describe in the book. Absolutely. Or, or, or doesn't take place in some cases. Absolutely. Um, so I make this distinction between, um, between two forms of travel that I call a mission and a quest. And a mission, as I was um, describing, are these really large, um, insular, highly, highly kind of self-motivated um, uh, travel groups that, that they are really on a mission. And they, in many ways, use Poland as um, or used, I should say, um, uh, Poland as a kind of a stage on which to perform a, a kind of um, pageant that uh, a pageant of death and redemption. I believe those were Jack Kugelmas's words. Um, uh, use Poland in a way to to um, to kind of play out a set of of Jewish communal concerns about waning identification among young people in uh, North America or lack of knowledge in Israel about the Holocaust, um, and the sense that. Uh, bringing people to, to you know, the site of the Holocaust to have people have an Im- embodied, um, I would dare say, almost traumatic experience of the Holocaust would be a kind of um, like a you know, it, um, it, it would kind of vaccinate them in a way against uh, losing their Jewishness. It would it would in some sense you know um, scare them into being Jewish or or give them this real uh, sense of the import of um, of remaining Jewish because look this is you know this is what um, this is this is the backdrop this is what will happen otherwise um, uh, so there was in terms of mission travel there was this incredible um, disinterest in Poland as something that actually existed in the present day. So just as if Poles had no, as just as if on the Polish side, there was little knowledge or understanding about contemporary Jewish life, these Jewish mission tours were completely not interested in Poland as a present day country. Poland, these trips to Poland were a sense, uh, an opportunity to, um, uh, to visit the Holocaust, to travel back in time um, and to have a, a, you know, have a Holocaust experience, um, which meant that people in those trips, um, for the most part, did not meet any Polish people beyond the driver of their bus um, and perhaps the uh, the guide at at various places that would um, that would simply bring them by the tickets. Um, usually, these trips went um, from death camp to death camp, uh, visiting those memorial sites. Um, rarely with any opportunities to to do anything um, that wasn't Holocaust related. Um, often there was, you know, um, encouragement not to spend money. Um, there really was a a sense that um, you know the real goal here is to um, is to have an intense um, uh, experience of the Holocaust, not to um, you know. It, in any way possible to avoid having a, f- a fun trip, um, at, which included, you know, not, not being in contact with local people who, frankly, were, were construed as being dangerous, um, as being, you know, a sea of anti-Semites around, um, as being simply a continuity from this Holocaust past that was being uh, being sort of curated for these trips. Um, and so, you know, we can talk about the, the evolution and potentially the change in those trips, as well as the, the limitations that I believe are inherent in that form of travel. Um, but that's something that for me was very much um, in distinction to what I called quests, which were people who came in small groups. They were motivated by often individual kinds of um, uh, kind of catalysts like wanting to find an ancestral place, um, wanting to come see this um, this yes, also traumatic Holocaust related site, but in a way that had to do with their need to perhaps um, 
try to work through some experiences that they had personally being children or grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Um, and so, you know, these were people who, um, who were looking in some ways, I think, to undo the kinds of stories that they grew up with rather than to reinforce them. Um, and, you know, these were people who also, because of the, the, the logistics of travel on one's own, were much, much more likely to have extended personal encounters with local people, whether they be Jews or non-Jews. Um, and I think often the, the contacts with non-Jews um, were uh, really ca- catalytic ones. Um, but those, those were often very transformative experiences for people on both sides um, to simply engage with each other, um, you know, talk about what they, what they knew and what they didn't know, what they were curious about. And frankly, even when people, even when Jewish people came with a lot of anger and pain about Poland um, and had a tour guide or a bookshop, uh, you know, clerk or um, someone uh, to unleash, unleash their distress and their own trauma and their own displeasure on, um, because it was one-on-one, those things often opened out into conversations or simply marked uh, the people on the Polish side in ways that were really often thought-provoking. And I think um, kind of, uh, yeah, kind of created the possibility, sowed the seeds for, um, for sort of personal and political transformations that were really significant, uh, in terms of people changing, uh, what they knew, what they understood, and also how they, um, how they pursued these, their own activism vis-a-vis Jewish heritage in Poland. You know, I think I rem- one of the figures in that book that, uh, comes back to mind is th- this, uh, fellow who's now based in London, I believe, and he keeps on coming back. And, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, sort of obliquely uh, a, uh, a bookstore, and there, that is a site where you speak a, a lot about as a place for negotiation and a reconciliation and dialogue. And perhaps you could talk about both those things. Okay, sorry, the, both of which things? The, the man, this man who's, this man is an example of this uh, kind of being caught up in, it was never quite clear to me what his connection, why he felt this need to come back. He seemed torn in himself, this London-based Jewish fellow. And that on the one hand, and then talk about this bookstore that is that you used as a sort of base to a certain extent as you did your field work. Okay. I'm, I'm actually not entirely sure which gentleman you're talking about. So I'll talk about the bookstore first, and then maybe you can tell me more about who you're remembering. Um, so, yeah, um, one site that really became my kind of base of operations um, during the m- multiple years when I was doing field work in, in Krakow and in, in Kazimierz is um, what came to be called the, the Jarden or Yarden Jewish Bookshop, um, which is run by um, a couple, uh, Zgisław and Lucina Lej. Um, and they were one of the first, uh, this was one of the first kind of, you know, publicly Jewishly kind of branded institutions in Kazimierz. Um, uh, they opened, I believe in 1994. Um, and this was around the same time with the first, um, instantiation of what came to be called Cafe Ariel. Um, and there were lots of different versions of that and disputes, um, uh, over the years, but a, a small cafe that became also a Jewish cafe um, were opened and, and became really crucial spaces, um, both for, you know, to, to function as kind of potential places of, of connection, um, of places where you could encounter people for travelers from abroad, um, as well as local non-Jews to discover Jewish culture, but equally for local Jews who as uh, as I was mentioning before, didn't really have any public space to be Jewish. Certainly, the Teas Kajet um, kind of social club filled with older men was not an attractive um, spot, or not even a spot where young people would feel, um, uh, you know, welcomed to come. Um, and so, these kinds of you know Jewish Jewishly, let's say, themed or Jewishly branded spaces like the bookshop um, became incredibly important. Uh, kind of crossroads and meeting spaces for all different kinds of people who were interested in uh, in Jewishness. Um, they also, for example, became the de facto um, kind of academic bookshop for um, the developing, growing Jewish studies program and their student cohorts at the nearby Yagalonian University. Uh, so 
the bookshop um, also ended up uh, becoming a kind of um, informal consultation space for students. So many, many, um, many, many uh, Jewish studies theses were born over conversation with Zizwav and Lutzina Lesh in the, the Yarden Jewish bookshop among students. Um, and actually, interestingly, uh, multiple um, PhDs and then later Jewish studies scholars um, uh, some of some of whom have quite successful, prominent nature actually grew up through that bookshop. Um, the bookshop not only sold books but also gave local tours. They developed. Um, they, they were they were there and open when Steven Spielberg came and uh, filmed Schindler's List, um, the you know big Hollywood blockbuster, using Kajimierz as the the quarter. So they uh, published uh, using a, along with a local journalist um, uh, a guide to the sites from Schindler's List. Um, and uh, they also developed their own, um, let's say, casual training program for uh, for young people to become guides of Jewish kajimiz. Um, and yeah, so m- many people who um, who were in my book were um, kind of interlocutors in my field work um, as quote subjects of my study uh, as young tour guides are now. Um, are now colleagues at North American universities in in Jewish studies, whether it be Yiddish uh, studies, history, etc. Um, so this bookshop for me was really an, a kind of uncanny uh, site um, that you know microcosm though it was really showed the kind of possibilities for um, for kind of processes of um, of working through um, the term reconciliation is you know a problematic one in in so many ways. Um, kind of, you know, gives a sense of closure, of finishedness, of that everything is somehow okay and we're all on the same page. Um, but rather, I like to think about sort of conciliatory processes that when there are spaces, when people can come and really um, talk about, uh, you know, what they know, what they feel, what they understand with other people who have different perspectives, um, uh, you know, even if that those conversations are very difficult, um, a space where, where um, you can have those uh, conversations and where the people who um, are running these businesses see those kinds of encounters, those kinds of difficult conversations, and and really developing their own understanding as part of their work, as part of their mission. Um, that that you know says so much to me about what I think what was invisible in what became uh, seen and widely reported on in the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, about this, this, you know, Jewish tourist industry, this Jewishness without Jews, this Jewishness for sale, you know, Holocaust Disneyland. Um, what I saw in that bookshop and in some similar sites um, was all of this kind of richness struggling with, um, you know, political commitment and struggling with the ethics and the morality of engaging with Jewishness um, as non-Jews in in this historical moment in really profound ways. Um, So it gave me just kind of a window onto, uh, you know, another, um, another sort of, let's say stream in society that I think is, is very important. Um, And that's something I I could even return to thinking about the the present moment, um, given the direction, the really unfortunate direction that Poland has been taken, taking politically and culturally now um, that, there still are, and there's a, this long-standing thread of um, of you know progressive uh, Polish people who really um, are are working very hard to engage with um, the very you know the nuanced, including the very difficult Jewish past in Poland, um, and that 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 frankly began uh, tangled up with uh, with Jewish heritage tourism. Uh, yeah, no, I I was going. We were, I was hoping to close out by talking a little bit about the situation. This book as uh, sort of closes in, I believe, 2007, uh, and uh, things have not, the last 10 years have not been a great period in Polish history, I fear. Um, I think the fellow's name, I just found it here, is Max Rogers, uh, a 40-year, described as a 40-year-old Hasidic Londoner. Um, that's that's just to remind you, I don't know if there's, I, I think you've already said a fair amount, you don't need to, but that's who I was speaking Um why don't we move on? I mean, sort of over leading into this, uh, so it's a segue because the 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 couple that run this bookstore, I believe, are not Jewish, uh, and you uh, describe them uh, use a term Shabbos Goyim, and uh, perhaps you could first explain the, the history of that term briefly, and then talk about this phenomenon as you see it in Poland. Sure. Um, maybe I'll say one sort of 
sort of prefatory remark um, leading into that. So it's it's very complicated to talk about people as Jewish and non-Jewish um, in this social setting in which I entered into. Um, and so I also began um, calling people Jewish identified. Um, you know, determining who is a Jew, you know, in the best of circumstances can be um, difficult, but given the history, uh, given the recent history of, you know, from since the war in Poland, um, people who, uh, you know, basically there was, there was such a trauma and so much um, death and, and so much, um, you know, kind of human chaos and people ended up in hiding and people ended up being given away and people ended up not knowing who their parents were and, um, and also just choices to, after such a trauma, disidentifying, um, with Jewishness, uh, you know, determining who is and who is not Jewish, um, in this setting is, um, is really difficult. And it's also, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a social and political setting where, um, where Jewishness itself is kind of a taboo subject and you're not really, sort of allowed to ask someone right out if they're Jewish, that's considered really, um, uh, you know, it would be the same thing as say in the 1980s, maybe asking someone in North America if they were gay, you know, in the, in the middle of a party, um, uh, just something that you, that you didn't do. Um, uh, yeah. So like, so I don't actually want to even say that people are or are not Jewish because people, um, many people come to these, um, these undertakings, many of these so-called non-Jewish activists, um, with various kinds of Jewish ancestry um, themselves, which um, they either um, know about and choose not to speak about, sometimes speak about, sometimes don't even know about. Um, so that's just to say that, yes, I would say that um, the owners of this bookshop are, um, are Jewish identified, <laughs> um, meaning you know, very close to Jewish issues, very much in support, very knowledgeable, um, uh, and, and disidentified with, with Catholic Polish culture. Um, uh, to this term that I used Shabbos Goyim. Um, so Shabbos Goyim traditionally have, were lo local non-Jews that supported, um, Jews in various ways to take care of work that, um, that Jews could not do because of ritual prohibitions on the Sabbath. Like, you know, there are all of these rules about not being able to, to turn off or turn on lights, you know, shut you, you know, turn on your stove, et cetera. Um, and so Shabbos Goyim, often when there were things that had to be done that Jews couldn't do, um, you know, helped take care of those things. Um, now, this is a really imperfect metaphor for, um, for what I wanted to describe uh, as, as a kind of kinship that I saw developing between non-Jewish caretakers of Jewish heritage in Poland. Um, uh, but... I guess I would say that I, I really liked the sense of like a cross community ethics of caretaking, um, which I, it, you know, it sort of bubbled up as an image um, of, you know, that Jew, Jews are not present in this situation to do something themselves. And so the non-Jews have stepped in to, to help um, with a sense of a, a kind of, um, um, yeah, it's a kind of like um, two communities somehow dependent on each other. Um, and uh, yeah, and then it also has a kind of ritual or kind of ethical um, aspect. Uh, but I also should say that I didn't just, um, I, I tried to be a good anthropologist and not take external terms and, and uh, you know, foist them onto the situation. But, um, but I first heard the term Shabbos Goyim being used as a local indigenous category. And I actually heard it used by Janusz Makuch, who was the non-Jewish founder of Krakow's Jewish Cultural Festival, to describe his own role vis-a-vis -vis Jews. So what is it, you know, for him, it was a way to um, give himself a kind of meaningful social position that legitimized his founding of a Jewish culture festival as a non-Jew, because I think he, on his end, faced a lot of pressure of why would you do that? Um, so to kind of reach out for, look, there are, um, there are historical, um, you know, kind of terms that indicate, you know, prior relations where Jews and non-Jews rely on each other um, in some productive way. Uh, you know, I thought just, it was just very interesting to see all that blossoming. Uh, and I mean, you're certainly right. I mean, my own understanding of it, I mean, there's so many people uh, uh, who have Jewish roots and don't talk about it or have only come to talk about it uh, in the post-communist period. Uh, that Yes, I, I think that uh, the, the distinction you're making makes a lot of sense. Um, 
you know, I want to move on to a, another aspect of tourism, and that's the commercial aspect. As I recall, one of the first things that kind of caught your eye were carvings of shtetl Jews you saw for uh, sale in Krakow. And uh, how has your research altered your understanding of those car- carvings and the marketing of Jewish culture today in Poland? Oh, okay, that's a big one. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, okay, in the broader sense, before talking about the carving specifically, I just, I guess I like to remind people that, um, you know, in terms of the, the commercial um, transactions around any kind of, you know, cultural form, um, always people who are doing something in a really in-depth way um, with a lot of commitment, um, with, a sense of, with a sense of ethics or deep engagement, um, or even really deep interest, that's always going to be the minority of people, right? I mean, um, so uh, I think the expectation that most people who are somehow engaged in, um, in consuming Jewish culture um, are doing it in some deep way. Um, you know, that's, that would be more than we would ask uh, for, you know, in, in any kind of cultural setting. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, people, people engaged in this industry, I was drawn to the people who were really deeply engaged, who were using, um, using the potential to, um, to uh, the, the potential inherent in uh, heritage tourism in, in the in creating a market for heritage as a kind of political and ethical act. Um, but that's not to say that once you have a you know Jewish restaurant, even a Jewish bookshop, a Jewish cabaret, or are selling uh, you know like you know tourist tchotchkes, um, that 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 those in any way um, you know have a a, a, a kind of depth. Um, but I also didn't want to exclude the fact um, that sometimes they do, uh, and show how you know even these most seemingly superficial settings through the kind of encounter that I was talking about sometimes really spark. Um, a lot of deep introspection and the possible for kind of possibility for political and cultural transformation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of my way of saying, yes, I mean, there are a lot of really um, kind of crass, um, superficial engagements uh, with, with Jewish culture, um, for sure, just like with any other kind of uh, culture. Um, and I, I often like to invoke the way that North Americans engage with uh, Native American culture. Um, but um but right but there is the possibility for something different um turning to the the figurines um the figurines fascinated me for a very long time and still fascinate me and in fact in some ways they they mark a real through line from my very first trip to Poland until my next project which i can tell you a bit about if you're interested um so in that very first trip in 1990 i also visited zakopane so this southern uh, resort town in the mountains um and at a small outdoor um, uh, like flea market, I saw a um, a wooden figurine of a Jew, which actually um, had a kind of mechanism so that you could put it on the edge of a table and it would bobble back and forth and it was holding a book. And so it would look like it was engaged in this traditional kind of Hasidic um, kind of shuckling, like uh, rocking version of prayer. Um, and, you know, it had a big nose um, and just did not look like, uh, you know, a pleasant um, depiction. It was really, um, and it struck me on that first trip, you know, with all of the my family history, history of the Holocaust in my mind is this incredible affront, incredible offense, very anti-Semitic. Um, uh, fast forward, I mean, I should say, you know, those, I saw those figurines, you know, here and there throughout the years, but fast forward to um, when I started doing my research more deeply um, in the very late 1990s, early 2000s, there was an explosion of these figurines. Um, they were starting to crop up all over the place. Um, and in a in a sort of uh, unfortunate twist, which I think also um, kind of ch- changed a certain meaning of them uh, or added a new layer on, uh, sometime in the early 2000s, many, many of them started holding gold coins. So really kind of pushing that um, negative Jewish stereotype really kind of to the, to the max. Um, uh, I got really fascinated in the figurines because they were confusing. Um, you know, my gut feeling was they, they looked at minimum highly stereotypical, if not anti-Semitic. And yet I was finding them, um, you know, in the homes and in the shops of incredibly 
committed, progressive, um, wonderful people who were doing everything that they could to, um, you know, stamp out anti-Semitism to uh, kind of, you know, um, recreate, uh, you know, and produce knowledge about the Jewish past, um, whether these were journalists, scholars, culture brokers of different sorts. Um, so there was a real, it, it sort of highlighted this incredible fault line in um, different perceptions, different narratives, um, uh, you know, different understandings of um of what images of Jews might mean from Jews like me coming from abroad and local Polish people, including progressive ones who found these images uh, somehow uh, a sign of their own identification, their commitment, or perhaps a, a kind of honorific uh, towards Jews. Um, and I should say that is even true. Um, I think there's a kind of split or a fault line or has become one around the figurines that have holding coins um, just because of that real crass and very dangerous stereotype associating with Jews, Jews with money, which of course goes back to, to medieval times, um, uh, that, that those are somehow kind of beyond the pale. Um, but, uh, but even among people who buy those figurines, and I should say the figurines with the coins also have um, a, a strong sense of uh, superstitious magic around them, a kind of sympathetic magic where the idea is that Jews were always good with money, so to say. Um, therefore, if I have one in my home, then money will, you know, I will be good in business as well. Um, so, you know, even people who purchase these, um, you know, what, what one might say are really kind of overloaded with kind of anti-Semitic um, symbolism in them, um, generally see them as something um, positive about Jews, an attribute that they too would like to have. So it gets quite... Um, quite complicated. Um, if I may, I may. I just want to interrupt. Sure. My my wife's grandmother. My wife is born in Ukraine. Uh, my wife's grandmother told her if she dreams uh, if she has a dream with a jewel in it, she's going to get some money. Right, and and then you know, it, it, I mean, there's something. I mean, there, there's much that I could say about the the sort of relation between these sort of you know static um, you know kind of wooden forms, these sort of fetishes, and sometimes how I've felt myself treated as a Jewish person in Poland, um, having kinds of magical qualities you know kind of attributed to me. Um, and I know this is the case from um, a Jewish friend, a Polish Jewish friend of mine in Warsaw, who has told a story about um, quite openly a business colleague. Uh, of his, a friend of his who's a business colleague uh, of a non-Jew being asked by the non-Jew to come along on him with, with him all expenses paid on a business trip to another part of Poland because the guy thought that if he had a Jew along, the business deal would go well. Um, and so, you know, the idea of um, you know, this kind of Jews being fetishes, whether they're whether they're in wooden form or actually in you know flesh and blood form, is also um, kind of disturbing. Uh, I think that. Um, uh, I mean, it really, it really shows like how deeply ingrained a sense of difference, superstition, and, and even kind of magical qualities were in a longstanding way and still are linked to Jews by Catholic Poles, even highly educated ones. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think on the one hand, I want to say that uh, it's important to me to maintain this idea that, you know, the radically different meaning that people associate with the same cultural form um, means that the, the possibility that something that looks horribly stereotypical, kitschy, or even anti-Semitic to one person can be another person's however flawed form of honoring Jews. Um, and it can also even be a gateway to kind of deeper engagement, possibly. Um, on the other hand, it's also a real um, indicator that celebrating Jewish cultural forms can go totally hand in hand with anti-Semitic attitudes without problem. Um, so those things both you know, exist side by side. Well, you know, we don't have a lot more time, so I want to just skip to the question that you've already alluded to, and that's what has happened uh, in the last decade uh, with the rise of uh, PIS, and uh, how has that affected uh, Jewish-Polish relations, heritage tourism, and all of those things? What do what you see now? Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, this is um, it's sort of so, you know, it's very disturbing um, events unfolding day by day. I have, you know, hundreds of tabs open on my, trying to keep up with all of the op-eds that are being written. Um, I guess, you know, staying on the 
try, trying to keep a bit of a focus on the question of of heritage tourism and and you know how these things um, focus and r- relate to and intertwine with some of the, the issues that I write about in my book. Um, I mean, I should I should as a disclaimer <coughs> start by saying that I haven't followed these issues in a fine grained way since the end of my research in terms of. Um, uh, yeah, in terms of the rise of the peace party and and you know these issues of of heritage projects. Um, that said, I can give a few kind of broad strokes. So, until quite recently, you know, one could say that peace or the you know the law and justice, um, this very right wing party, that their influence on Jewish heritage, tourism, heritage brokering, et cetera, was was neutral or even positive. Uh, in terms of Jewish heritage initiatives in Poland. So, you know, we have to remember that, for example, um, it was during former Polish president uh, Lech Kaczynski's time when he was mayor of Warsaw that the city of Warsaw entered into this very important public-private partnership that funded the building of the multi-million dollar Poline Museum. Uh, The thing is, the promotion of Jewish heritage initiatives is an area that both progressive and conservative forces can agree on, particularly if you don't scratch too deeply. Um, so, you know, the the cynical interpretation of the motive, the motives of po- Polish nationalists in these kinds of Jewish heritage projects is that investing in Jewish heritage plays really well on the international stage. It's an easy kind of PR to say, you know, look how much we appreciate our Jews. Um, it helps counter longstanding Western concerns about Polish anti-Semitism. Now, of course, the content of these heritage initiatives is also important, not irrelevant. Um, A narrative of, say, you know, we've had centuries of Polish-Jewish brotherhood is kind of a favored approach by right-wingers. And this narrative, of course, can you know, elide, I mean, definitely elides the very difficult events, uh, you know, during those centuries, um, you know, anti-Semitic pogroms, um, you know, issues of the Holocaust, complicity in the killing of Jews, et cetera, uh, post-war violence, anti-Semitic campaigns, et cetera. Um, and, and this narrative, th- these narratives that are often promulgated in, um, in, in kinds of, uh, you know, heritage initiatives that, that right-wingers may, um, may support, you know, may also play on anti-Semitic stereotypes in the way Jews are depicted. I mean, the figurines are a case in point, but, you know, what roles did Jews play in society, even the the constant distinction between, quote, Poles and Jews? So that in itself is really problematic language. It essentializes both groups, but generally portrays Jews as something that's really foreign to an essential Poland. Um, but of course, uh, you know, all of this has kind of, all of this sort of differentiation, all of this uh, nuance has kind of changed in recent weeks, even since peace enacted the so-called Holocaust law, which criminalizes speech that implicates the Polish nation in Holocaust crimes. Um, you know, now this has raised all sorts of questions, like really uh, concrete, p- practical questions regarding uh, Jewish heritage brokering, like can foreign Jewish guides leading youth groups through Auschwitz be exposed to criminal proceedings, uh, you know, if they say the wrong thing, if they say something that seems to portray uh, the Polish nation negatively? Um, Could Holocaust survivors themselves telling their own stories uh, be prosecuted if they say something that displeases government officials? Uh, You know, it's really unclear whether, whether tour guiding, for example, is the kind of public expression that falls under this law. you know, in 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 also sinister ways, um, in really concrete ones, the new government is also uh, beginning to make moves, and this is just really in the recent couple of weeks, to make moves towards changing the Pauline Museum's leadership. So swapping in board members that share their uh, conservative views, um, and this has really disturbing echoes with this with this total travesty that was perpetrated against the World War II museum in Gdansk in the past year, um, whose, you know, very cosmopolitan message about the war was essentially gutted along with the director in favor of a nationalist message. Um, so that, you know, we need to see how that is going to play out. Um, also a new museum, a, a, um, what's supposed to be titled the Warsaw Ghetto Museum was also just announced by 
the Minister of Culture and Heritage, Piotr Kalinsky, who um, says using just this uh, this kind of discourse I was mentioning that this museum will be a symbol of the brotherhood of Poles and Jews. So clearly, you know, in the same neighborhood, another large museum, clearly an attempt to sort of speak back at uh, Pauline, the Pauline Museum's narrative, um, despite the fact that, you know, I mean, many people have criticized the Pauline Museum as being, uh, I mean, if not balanced, it's been criticized as being like too pro-Polish. Um, so, you know, there are lots of things unfolding right now, which, um, which really, you know, point to a, a darker turn, um, where it's, it's going to be harder and harder to, um, to maintain, uh, these sort of spaces for independent critical culture on any topic, but especially on uh, the Jewish issue, because the peace government, um, you know, really uh, wants to control, um, they, they want to reverse what they call uh, this last couple of decades of so-called pedagogy of shame, which of course um, I think of as being, you know, really important, appropriate um, you know, international introspection uh, and reckoning with history. Um, they want to replace that uh, so-called shameful pedagogy with a, a kind of pedagogy of pride, celebration, um, which you know makes it much easier to um, to look at any expression of Jewish heritage, um, kind of promulgation or celebration with a cynical eye, rather than um, looking at its possibility. Um, I would maybe just that said, I would maybe leave um, with the idea that at the same time, you could say that it makes uh, the, you know, the independent producers of Jewish heritage initiatives all the more important because those spaces for independent progressive culture are radically shrinking in Poland today. So um, despite the fact that, you know, I, I'm uh, maybe like, you know, looking very much through a, a really narrow, narrow and even narrowing lens, um, uh, I feel like that makes um, my championing of the champions of Jewish culture, uh, you know, with a critical eye in Poland, all, all the more important today. Well, uh, thank you. I said the book is fascinating. I recommend it. Um, could you uh, just briefly tell us uh, what you're working on now? Oh, what am I working on now? Um, okay, well, I am <clears throat> um, currently working on a, a curatorial project related through a few steps to. Um, to this issue of the figurines, the Jewish figurines, which I, you know, tangentially wrote about in um, in the book. Um, so, uh, I mean, those led me to a broader interest in um, so-called Polish folk art, um, mostly in the form of wood carving, but um, a kind of related related genre that depicts in wooden form the Nazi occupation of Poland. Um, the The project is called Awkward Objects of Genocide. And there will be an exhibition in the Krakow Ethnographic Museum opening um, in November of this year and running through March 2019. Um, this is a team project I'm working on with three Polish colleagues. So Roma Sendyka from the Jagiellonian University, Magdalena Zich from the Ethnographic Museum, and um, an independent photographer, Wojciech Wilczek, who's done fabulous work photographing um, synagogues across Poland and Polish nationalist graffiti. Um, this this genre of folk art is really a kind of uncanny sort of carving, mostly dating to the 1960s and 70s. Um, and it's it's quite tantalizing to us because it seems to offer um, potentially a new kind of source base to get a glimpse of, of bystander Holocaust memory. So, you know, what did Polish villagers, Polish peasants what did they see? What did they feel? What did they remember? What did they later document and communicate about the expulsion and the killing of their Jewish neighbors? Um, you know, Timothy Snyder's um, Bloodlands and uh, Father Dubois' um, Holocaust by Bullets. So these these kind of works have really drawn attention to them, these much more intimate sites of killing that took place outside of camps during the Holocaust um, with, you know, with the participation of local East European populations. And these carved sculptures that we're looking at have, they've really been sort of lost in the archives in Polish ethnographic and folk museums and collections. Um, and we use the title Awkward Objects because the form disrupts so many accepted narratives like um, that folk art is always timeless, happy, and superficial. Um, 
it disrupts certain interesting Holocaust representation taboos because many of these artworks that we're working with sort of go places that the Western taboo, at least high art taboo, that stopped short of um, depicting things like the inside of gas chambers or crematoria. Um, uh, you know, th- this this kind of folk art actually goes there. Um, uh, and the, the question also of whether we can call this witness art if it was made for commercial markets and if it was made at the urging of, of the communist state. Um, and it also raises questions of how the Holocaust was sort of polonized. Like, so Jews frequently get swapped out in favor of, um, you know, ca- characters that support Polish martyrology. Um, and maybe one one last thing, this is the part that I think fascinates me most about this project, is um, one of the most interesting questions it raises is, is whose memory, whose memory is being represented in these artworks? Because it turns out that the most prominent collectors of this kind of art, who also played roles in commissioning specific themes, were German collectors. Now, the idea that Polish peasant folk art, which, you know, has been certainly during the communist period was represented as like the soul of the Polish nation. You know, it's what the, the folk themselves made. Um, and particularly these scenes representing world war II suffering, the idea that these would actually be co-produced by Germans is a pretty striking revelation to digest. Um, so simply, you know, basically we want to draw attention with this project to, on the one hand, a forgotten art form that raises really thorny questions about whether and how Polish bystanders viewed and remember the Holocaust, um, at least in this form, you know, given the, all these various kinds of pressures um, on artistic expression, um, you know, at that time, given all of the different players in, in the industry. So um, I hope if listeners hear this and are interested and, and can make it to Poland sometime next fall or winter, they'll, uh, they'll see the exhibition. I would love to make it there. Uh, well, Erica, it has been a pleasure talking about your book, A Jewish for All Unrevisited Heritage Tourism in uh, Unquiet um, Places, which is published by Indiana uh, University Press. And um, until next time, I wish our, our listeners the best. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, Hugo. Bye.